Welcome to week 32 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books and a look at Philip Pullman's Northern Lights. I'm a day late this week with this podcast because the more I reflected on the book, the more I realised just how very much it meant to me and continues to mean to me, not simply because it is an amazing story, but for its themes, its ideas, its characters. It is one of the richest trilogies I've ever read. It is now over 30 years since I was accepted onto the course for my PGCE. It seems odd saying that, since now anyone applying for teacher training in STEM, MFL and English is showered with bursary funding and their arms bitten off to get them to sign up. At that time, although English was sufficiently a shortage subject for the course to be funded by the government, there were still more applicants than places on courses, so it was with a sigh of relief that I opened a heavy manila envelope which included my letter of acceptance and a hefty reading list. The best part of the reading list was the 100 plus children's books. I hadn't read any children's books since I was about 12 or 13, and the genre had changed in the intervening 13 years. I caught up on Anne Fine, Jean Kemp, Burley Doherty and many others, and when I headed to China, I joined a children's book club and kept up to date. They sent me one book a month, some of them great, some of them not so much. And one day in 1995, I received a copy of a book with a beautiful cover from a writer I hadn't really come across before, someone called Philip Pullman. From the opening moments of the book, I was utterly enthralled. Lyra and Pantalaimon, her demon, are where they should not be. The premise of every child having their fluid demon was a wondrous mechanism. There was the sinister behaviour of the Master of Jordan College, the charisma of Lord Asriel, the references to Blake and Milton. All of these combined to keep me gripped through my first read and much rereading. I reread Northern Lights first when the second volume, The Subtle Knife, came out. I reread, I reread both before starting The Amber Spyglass, the third volume in the trilogy. My small son and I were listening to the magnificent audio version, driving back from school one evening before discovering that three airliners had hurtled into the World Trade Towers and the Pentagon. I took the same small son a few years later to the National Theatre production of the complete His Dark Materials trilogy, and I have reread and listened again and again to all three books in the past few years, as both Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth were published. Belle Sauvage is a beautiful prequel to the Dark Materials trilogy and The Secret Commonwealth, a stunning follow-up set when Lyra is 20. The first Harry Potter was published a couple of years after Northern Lights, but for me, there is no contest. I read the complete oeuvre of Harry Potter as each book came out. I was very happy to see both my boys enjoying them as they grew up, but my true favourite then and now were Pullman's books. Rowling writes at great pace. She is elusive and playful and has created some wonderfully memorable characters, Dolores Umbridge being one of my particular favourite love-to-hate villains. But Pullman's world, his descriptive passages, his soaring imagination and the heartbreak he unleashes on his characters are richer, deeper and far more layered than the Potter stories. The books, as with Rowling's Potter series, have roused the wrath of religious extremists on both the uh, Catholic wing and the Protestant wing of the church. 
By the time I read them, I was firmly in the devil's camp, atheist, ungodly, but even I was shocked and impressed by the amber spyglass. God is no longer a terrifying being, but a shriveled, shrunken creature who effectively is turned to dust. But then, Pullman's conception of dust itself is wondrous and life-affirming. Of course we return to dust, and as dust, we are part of the fabric of the world, the universe, the essence of existence. Pullman has confirmed that he regards himself as agnostic rather than atheist. He cannot be sure that a god or gods do not exist rather than outright disbelief. I don't think it matters one way or the other. I think children and adults who read the books will continue to experience belief or disbelief on their own terms. And this goes to the heart of how we are shaped by books. Having worked in many schools over the years, there have been numerous times when parents have queried why we in school are teaching particular texts, including Pullman. Often parents are emotional, angry, insistent and stressed when voicing their complaints. And then there is the whole business of trigger warnings and trauma stresses. Underlying these responses are fear, leaps of logic and conflation of ideas, as well as a lack of faith in reader and a failure to understand how our minds work. When I think back to my own years as a teenager at school, there were no bans on books, there were no controls on what books we brought into school or shared. At school, at 14, 15, 16, we read airport paperbacks with graphic and in some cases wildly abusive and ugly sex scenes, alongside a raft of what are now regarded as classics of erotic literature, such as the story of O, Lady Chatterley's lover, the writing of Anais Nin and Henry Miller, Emmanuel, Lolita, Fear of Flying. Of course, this was not in class. Although Latin literature offered the delights of Catullus and Ovid, severely mitigated by the stern glowers of our Latin teacher, Miss Smith. This unsentimental education did not turn any of us, as far as I'm aware, into raging nymphomaniacs, although I remember a fair degree of being absolutely repelled and repulsed by the story of O. Now, compared with the dangers of online platforms like OnlyFans and Pornhub, our explorations seem unsophisticated, naive. I suspect the difference is that as we passed these books between us, we talked about them, we shared responses and reactions, we asked each other baffled questions and reached our own conclusions. And there is, of course, it is increasingly clear, a significant difference between what we read and what we see. When we simply see something, it is immediate. Our brains process what is in front of us, and though artists, photographers, and now AI can distort images, generally speaking, it is a direct transmission between the eye and our brain, followed by responses, thoughts, and emotions. But reading is in itself a cognitive process. We have to learn how to read. We have to understand how to decode symbols and sounds, followed by engaging with the concepts embodied in those symbols. Then we have to understand and interpret the letters and phonemes on the page. We have to piece together the meaning, filter it through our own experiences and position it in relation to everything else we know about the world. The act of reading is in itself a layered and complex process, however automatic it may seem, once we have learned how to do it. And then we must add the further layer of interpretation, analysis and evaluation. Some books are easy, others are tough. Some seem 
easy, but to get the most from them, you need to read them as though they are tough. Some seem tough, but are actually relative straightforward once you have clicked with the writer's style and approach. I vividly remember my first adventures in reading, a story about two magpies stealing jewellery, a book with heavy pages and vivid Czech-style puppets posed to illustrate fairy stories by Perrault and Hans Andersen. The first lady books with Peter and Jane carefully numbered and lettered 1C, 4B to designate the number of key words, the level of reading ability of the child. It feels as though it happened very fast. I know that I could read within weeks of starting proper school and moved swiftly from Peter and Jane to what I thought of as real stories, the stories that came to inhabit me as much as I ventured into them. Books and reading offer us a conduit to ideas, places and events that we can never see or directly experience. I knew as a child of six or seven that I would never have adventures like the famous five, but I loved reading about them. And as I read Greek myths and the Narnia books, my love of fantasy and dreams of talking animals deepened. But of course, I knew that I would never, like Lucy and Susan, be invited to climb on Aslan's back and ride across the world, that I would never need, like Caspian, to sneak out of a castle and ride hell for leather into the forest for fear of my wicked uncle sending his assassins to dispatch me. Philip Pullman's books are powerful additions to this literature of the unleashed imagination, and the act of reading these books is an addition to a child's armoury of ways of seeing the world. What those inclined to ban and suppress books fail to understand is that the very act of declaring a book worthy of banning is to make it more intriguing, desirable and seductive. Alongside that, fantasy is about possibility, about exploring our inventiveness, our ingenuity and creativity. All books are fundamentally about some aspect of our humanity, and to ban them is to try to suppress or conceal that humanity. This includes the ideas and experiences that make us uncomfortable, sad, uneasy, fearful, anxious. These are normal human responses, and one of the great gifts that books deliver to us is that empathy which allows us to deepen both our understanding and our response to difficulty, to adversity, and critically, to difference between ourselves and others. In certain circles, I have heard people claim that certain books are inappropriate or unsuitable for children. These are often books written for young children, picture books, books about a friendly lion or a china rabbit, one of whose owners puts it in a dress, books about little girls who don't like pink or little boys who don't like blue or little boys who dream, fall out of their bed, float naked into a bowl of dough in the night kitchen. Even the most cursory glance at these books exposes not any unsuitability in the books, but the terrors and insecurities of the people who wish to ban them. These are people fearful of non-conformity, of individuality, of independence of thought and imagination. We owe it to ourselves as humans, and still more to our children, to read critically, wisely, and Pullman, a former English teacher, knows this. He also knows children. Lyra is a magnificent child, stroppy, opinionated, wild, impetuous and intuitive. She has a tough life. 
She is an inconvenience to her parents, to be parked first at Jordan College, then picked up when she may be of use to either of them. Both her father and mother are difficult, obsessive people with little sense of responsibility to the child they have created. They are also at war with themselves, with each other, and in a wider struggle between the magisterium and the rebellion against it and the authority, the established church of Pullman's world. In Northern Lights, Pullman also introduces us to Lee Scoresby, the airman, for me the most honourable of the adults in the novels, and Yorick Birnison, the most charismatic of characters, betrayed and usurped king of the armoured bears, warrior and a loyal friend to Lyra. Pullman does not shy away from difficult or dark events. The focus of Northern Lights is the discovery of Lyra's mother's experiment in severing the bond between children and their demons, an act of incredibly deep cruelty, destroying an individual's personality, vivacity and agency. The relationship between human and demon is innate, elemental, essential to humanity, and a person without a demon cannot be whole. One of the most terrible, memorable moments of the book is the discovery of a child, Tony Makarios, who has been kidnapped and is found in the Arctic waste near the experimental station, nursing a frozen fish as a hideously inadequate replacement for his demon Ratta. The human cost of incision is so vivid, so destructive, a metaphor for all the evils that we humans are capable of inflicting on each other. Pullman is a writer with a sense of nuance and deep empathy for his fellow humans. His characters are not simply good or bad, but complicated, flawed, rich, multifaceted. They are not easy individuals. Sometimes as readers, we may recoil from their choices, loathe their decisions or actions. He plays with stereotypes, subverts expectations, and helps us understand our own complexities and contradictions. It is no surprise that his books have transcended simplistic divisions between children's and adults' literature. It is no surprise that these same books evoke fear and dislike, even hatred, in those who know but cannot understand that books offer us doorways into other worlds and other perspectives that show us that one limited viewpoint is never enough that the act of banning books is the act of repression, not simply of words, but of our human condition. Next week, there's going to be a change of format for 60 Weeks, 60 Books. I'll be talking with the person who first introduced me to a book which explores the consequences of burning and banning, first books and then people. Join me and my husband Peter for a discussion of Hitler's willing executioners, by Daniel Goldhagen.